With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to WordBalloon.com, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Before Jinx, Sin City, Stray Bullets, and any of the other crime comics you might think of, true crime novelist Max Allen Collins brought the genre back to prominence in the 1970s. First by taking over the Dick Tracy strip from creator Chester Gould. Then creating Ms. Tree, the Mickey Spillane-inspired Lady Gumshoe, to his outstanding series Road to Perdition, which became the basis for the Oscar-winning film adaptation starring Tom Hanks and Paul Newman. To coincide with the upcoming IDW hardcover release of the original Chester Gould Dick Tracy comic strips, we present this 2005 conversation with Max Collins about the history of Dick Tracy, Ms. Tree, and Road to Perdition, as well as discussing their shared backdrop setting, the city of Chicago, and the true Chicago crime stories that inspired film, television, and comics. The conversation was originally conducted to be used in a video documentary about Chicago crime fiction. That project is currently in limbo. But as a true pop culture historian, Max comments were so richly detailed that I'm pleased to resurrect his participation and present them in this Word Balloon episode. Because only Max's words were intended originally for broadcast, my questions are slightly off mic. Our conversation begins with a look at the father of crime comics, the creator of Dick Tracy, Chicago Tribune cartoonist Chester Gould. Chester Gould was a fascinating guy. He is an example that in the arts, if you are persistent and you have a little talent, you will get much farther than somebody who's got a lot of talent but you know doesn't have that drive he had drive for ten years in chicago he knocked on doors of of newspaper editors and syndicates and for every major newspaper in town every minor newspaper in town he came around with this concept for comics and that concept for comics and if you dig back in the old newspaper files you'll see half a dozen or more of these failed Chester Gould comics that don't go anywhere and don't last very long. He did sports cartoons, he did political cartoons, he just hung in there. But he was looking for that special that special thing that would separate him from the pack. And he really wanted to be a, a humor cartoonist. And if you look back at the bulk of his cartooning, it's, it's what they call Bigfoot cartooning. It's more of the Mutton Jeff and the Gumps and that kind of stuff. But it's now the late 20s, 29, 30, and, and uh, Gould is looking for something different. And what's in the newspapers? Well, Al Capone is in the newspapers. Uh, the whole Prohibition era is all over the front pages. St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Jake Lengel getting killed. So Gould decides that newspapers are supposed to reflect you know obviously a newspaper is journalism so a comic strip that had a journalistic aspect might be interesting and also i don't know how aware chet was of it but you also have dashiell hammett happening at the same time in black mask the pulp magazine and you have edgar g robinson and jimmy cagney in, in gangster movies very beginnings very beginnings of it because this is right about when sign came in but chet would have been aware of that he also was a Sherlock Holmes fan. So his idea was, well, I will pit an American Sherlock Holmes, I will put him in a fedora instead of a deer stalker cap, and instead of an Inverness cape, we'll put him in a trench coat. 
and he will be his Moriarty will be the biggest criminal in Chicago and that of course was Scarface Al Capone and so the first villain in Dick Tracy and in the proposal he did was big boy and it was blatantly Al Capone the, the cap the hat the cigar I think he even had the scar and it was absolutely Capone um, and that sold immediately to the Tribune and it became pretty much an overnight success and in the first ten years of the strip maybe more he was reflecting the real-life gangsters and also the real-life outlaws because we had all those wonderful outlaws passing through Chicago Dillinger and even Bonnie and Clyde uh, Ma Barker and her sons uh, Lester of oh, Mel Melvin Purvis was here as a G-man and I think he may have had an impact on on uh, on Dick Tracy but more was Elliot Ness and I actually asked Chet when I started working on the strip uh, I, I took over in 1977 and I already was fascinated with Elliot Ness and I said did you base this on Elliot Ness? And he said, well, I don't really, I don't think I base it on that. Yeah, guy on the Untouchables TV show. I said, well, well, Chet, who did you base it on? He said, well, there was this guy in the newspapers in those days that was being presented as the one honest Fed, and the Feds were incorruptible. And, you, and I said, Chet, that was Elliot Ness. Well, I guess it was, you know. But he had seen that the, the local police were not responding, but that a certain breed of federal uh, law enforcement agent was actually making inroads and so right at the time Dick Tracy's getting off the ground uh, Elliot Ness, Elmore I. Ray uh, and Frank Wilson among others Dwight Green so on are getting you know getting Al Capone ready to uh, to head eventually to Alcatraz initially it was Atlanta let's talk about Elliot Ness um, portrayed in the untouchables as this crusading hero separate the fact from the fiction in terms of, of his real role in, in bringing down the home. Ness has to be the most ironic figure in American law enforcement history. He's the most famous detective, really, of all time, the most famous real-life detective. He's a prohibition agent who probably died an alcoholic. He's a relatively modest man. He often gave credit to people like I. Ray and Wilson, who incidentally never gave credit to him. And yet he's the one who's been portrayed as the publicity seeker. I would ask some of these people, why did I. Ray and Wilson never mention Ness in their books, but he mentioned them in his. He was just a guy at the end of his life who'd had this incredible, incredible run that had run out, and he was at a kind of a low point when he wrote this autobiography with a sports writer who basically heard his sort of drunken stories one night at a, at a convention and said, Elliot, you need to write, write this book. He died at his kitchen table at age 54 with a uh, you know, bottle of whiskey nearby and the galleys of the untouchables. He never saw any of this fame. He never benefited from any of this latter-day fame. So irony runs through his story. One of the major things he did after he got out of sort of formal law enforcement was he worked for the, for the government in the area of VD, fighting VD on the... Uh, military bases during the war. So you have Elliot Ness fighting VD at the same time that Al Capone is literally fighting VD. So, so the ironies in the Ness story are amazing. But I'm here to tell you that Ness was the real deal and that all of this stuff, all of this uh, latter-day revisionist history is BS. 
by people who have not gone in and really dug into it. What happened was the TV show so overstated what he did that it made a lot of people who were still alive at the time, you know, other, other people in law enforcement, really resent Ness, even though Ness had nothing to do with, with the uh, overblown nature of the later Untouchable series and the, the later film, of course. So you have a lot of people who are trying to set the record straight who, in doing so, have set it totally off course. You know, the number of indictments he and the Untouchables brought against Capone is huge. Much of the evidence that the, the tax guys brought Capone down with, books confiscated by Ness and his raiders. As far as publicity, until Capone was actually prosecuted, Ness and his men, their names weren't even in the papers. They, they had been, to protect them, had, had been pretty much secret. Now, Ness's name would appear now and then, but they were protecting his guys because they were on the firing line and they were a small group of, of raiders stinging him and confiscating all of his uh, trucks and destroying the breweries and arresting his, his brewmasters. So he was a real deal. And then, of course, he wanted to Cleveland where he was the first really great, not police chief, he was the public safety director, but he had the first great modern police force in the United States, which he built out of a, a uh, police force so corrupt that it, it, made, uh, it made Chicago look like Mother Teresa was in charge. Uh, so he, he was a great, great man, much maligned. Well, let's talk about the TV show. Here's what happened with the TV show. They option Elliot Ness's autobiography, which is largely true. Uh, there are, it, it's put together by Oscar Fraley, a sports writer, who puts it together in a haphazard way. So, so he's using scrapbooks, he's using some memoirs that Ness wrote, and there's a lot of things out of order. But if you sort through it, everything in there really did happen. So you have, uh, you have this book, which is fairly accurate. Certainly the, the basic components are accurate. They make a really good two-hour TV movie out of it, which appeared in two parts on a thing called Desilu Playhouse. That was supposed to be it. It was a one-shot. Well, all of a sudden, America was fascinated with Scarface Al Capone again. I mean, this was like a mini Beatles kind of thing. The first episode came on, every school kid in the country was talking about this untouchable show that they'd seen on TV. And then the second week with Capone character shows up, and my name is Al, and so I was called Big Al for years. You know, my middle name is Alan, and, and people call me Al. So I heard Big Al, Big Al, Big Al, all for, from the untouchables when I was in grade school. So it wasn't a pilot, but suddenly they have this hot, hot property. So they put the show together, but they used the whole book up. They sent Capone away at the end. So instead of backing up and doing a show that was always about Capone and how they got Capone and maybe starting with little grains of truth and building things, they suddenly unleashed Ness on, you know, Ma Barker and, you know, Dutch Schultz and, and, you know, all of these, all of these real-life gangsters and fictitious gangsters who he had nothing to do with. And so that's how he got the reputation for, uh, you know, being a publicity seeker when, in fact, he wasn't even alive and probably would have been the first one to raise his hand and say, guys, that, was, that wasn't me, that was, that was the FBI. I do want to cover Capone. Can you give us a, a quick, like, your, your you know, it's tough to sum up Al Capone, but obviously this, I do want to get to Nitty as well. Sure. So let's start with... Because I'm, I'm actually more interested in Nitty. And I realize that where the purgatory obviously focuses on Nitty as well, plus, you know, certainly Perdition does as well with the interactions. Yeah. 
one of the things I think is really fascinating about Al Capone is he's similar to Mayor Cermak, who Frank Nady later had killed, at least I believe he did, because they were guys who were immigrants, they were rough-hewn, but they knew how to make alliances among different immigrant groups. I mean, one of the things nobody really talks about is that the mob is Jews and uh, Italians and uh, some Irish. I mean, it's an incredible melting pot of America working together fine for the sake of capitalism. It's a wonderful thing. And Capone was a guy who could make that happen. He was charismatic. He was very, very smart. Um, his real downfall was, I believe, his, his temper and the fact that he would uh, allow a level of violence. He got arrogant, um, like presidents do sometimes, and threw his weight around in terms of uh, the firepower in a way that eventually became his undoing. His successor, Frank Nitti, was the guy who really, I feel, invented uh, the whole notion of being a CEO of crime, and he was trying desperately to move into strictly legitimate areas. And I believe if Nitty hadn't been killed or committed suicide, we don't know exactly what happened there, I really believe that there's a really good chance that the mob would not have stayed in gambling and drugs and things like that, because he was trying very hard to get into, into strictly legitimate uh, businesses. Because he thought that was the, the progress. You're immigrants, you come in, uh, you can't access the system. You you know you serve your community the best you can. You give people what they want. They want women. You give them women. They want gambling. You certainly booze was the one that opened the door and made it. Just generally, I think you you can't get away from the notion that making booze illegal, something that's in the daily lives of a lot of people, and saying well that's a crime, that the casual breaking of that law didn't lead for a general breaking down of mores so that all of a sudden well what's wrong with drugs or what's wrong with prostitution or what's wrong with gambling because what's the difference and it's all that you know all trying to legislate morality which is you know usually not a good idea Ness himself who was a drinking man uh, and possibly an alcoholic went on record even back in those years was saying that it was a bad law so isn't that interesting here you have the most famous prohibition agent who only knows that, that that law is allowing organized crime to, to get a grip on, on city government, on good citizens, and on America, and that it had to be broken down, even though, he did, even though he liked to drink himself. And that's what that was about. So he was not a prude, and I think that's one of the reasons why he has remained something of a hero, even though you could easily portray him as like, well, what's wrong? Don't you want me to have a beer after work? Uh, but no, he, he didn't care about the drinking. He cared about the organized crime. He cared about the violence. He cared about the corruption. He really was offended by the notion that uh, you know, he didn't find the, the Chicago corruption warm and folksy and funny. He had honest parents, honest immigrant parents who, who built, his father had bakeries. He, he never took a dishonest nickel in his life, uh, Elliot said. And he said, and so in his mind, immigrants didn't have to go down that, that dark road. And so he was offended as, as the son of an immigrant that that was the excuse. And that had a lot to do with what, what drove him. So Frank Nady takes over for Capone, and you, you began to tell us about him as a, as a CEO of organized crime and, and, and moving it towards right. legitimacy. Um, the, Cermak, the Cermak assassination attempt, you, you talked about that to me on the phone. Right. You know, and 
would you would you care to share the theory? You, it was covered on the show, as you, as you yes, know, as well. uh, but they did it in a in a very botched way. How I came upon it was originally on the Elliot Ness uh, Untouchables TV show. They did a very inaccurate story about the Cermak shooting, but still it was Zangara and it was interesting and it kind of fascinated me. And one thing I have always done is when I see something that interests me in film that's based on, on reality, I usually go back and do my own research to see what really happened. Uh, Hollywood does not have too good a track record in, in this area, by the way. So I read as a kid and figured out that Sir Mac was probably hit by the mob. Uh, and so when I got the idea of doing a private detective series that would be set in Chicago and would be set in the real uh, you know, in the real era with the real people. And I thought, well, okay, rather than just do a period story, why don't I do a crime that is sort of unsolved or is, in, uh, is controversial? And it seemed to me Cermak was perfect because it was a great entree into the mob. And uh, interestingly, I, I was a little frustrated because I didn't think I'd be able to use Elliot Ness. And then when I did the... Uh, because the, the general... Uh, take on Ness is that after Capone went away, he sort of disappeared. Well, it's not true. He was in Chicago for another year and a half or so, and he was in the middle of that whole Cermak business. He he was questioning the guys who were at the shooting of Frank Nitti. And I should start there. What happens is, basically, there's an honest cop, and in my novel, I made him my hero, Nate Heller. But in real life, there really was an honest cop who was not named Nate Heller, who was just minding his own business when a couple of the mayor's bodyguards grabbed him and said I, we need backup and he said what's it about shut up come along because they were there they were called the hoodlum squad mayor Cermak's hoodlum squad now you might think the hoodlum squad would go after hoodlums but in fact they were hoodlums and they were tough guys bodyguards they took this honest cop you know <laughs> who to thunk it they managed to find an honest cop in chicago to go along with him and so they went to Frank Nitti's office and rousted him, brought him out in one room. All his guys were in the other room and shot him in the neck, shot him in the back and the neck multiple times. And then later said that he resisted arrest. Well, they made a really big mistake because when you shoot Frank Nitti or really any mob boss, you really need to make sure he's dead. And Nitti survived. And about a month later, Mayor Cermak, uh, who sent those boys to do that, winds up dead in Miami at the hands of a Sicilian, uh, a, a guy who thought he was dying of stomach cancer and who shouted a bunch of anar anarchy kind of phrases. And the history still, a lot of historians accept that he was trying to kill President Roosevelt. And uh, even Cermak liked because he took him a few days to die he made sure that the press got this his his last words which weren't his last words at all which were, i'm glad it was you and not no I'm glad it was me and not you he supposedly said to roosevelt dying in roosevelt's arms so the trouble is he didn't die for a couple of days and he contrived that himself and got it into the press but, you know, the moral of the story is that even the mayor of Chicago doesn't get to shoot Frank Nitti and get away with it uh, if he'd actually got the job done. And then, to make matters worse, the honest cop testifies against him and, and uh, unravels the whole thing. If Sir Mac had not been dead, he'd have, he'd have been dead.
that would have been because it was one of those rare times where somebody said I'm going to blow the lid off Chicago and they actually kind of did um, and of course the two guys that were up for it the two cops who went up and shot Nitty the things they knew I mean you can imagine what would have happened if that all all came out when I was growing up and, and loving uh, crime fiction what they now call noir and we used to call hard-boiled uh, even tough guy was what we called it most of the stuff I read was set in New York and in LA and I grew up in Muscatine Iowa and the only big city relatively close to me was Chicago and I did spend a lot of time in Chicago but early on as a kid I tried to write about LA and New York and it was so phony and so unreal it was it didn't make any sense but there was something in my mind that well that's what mystery writers do they write about New York you know, and, and, and LA when I got a little older um, and I had about 10 years of my career behind me and I had mostly written stories set in Iowa and set in my own home area and had become a little bit of a regional mystery writer in Iowa I thought well I really want to write about a big city private eye and I'd always been fascinated with Elliot Ness and the Untouchables and Al Capone and I'd also been fascinated with the outlaws of the Midwest uh, and of course Dick Tracy was a mix and so I thought well gee really surprisingly there's no major private eye series set in Chicago and all of that rich uh, criminal history was was untapped but you see I was at an interesting point because this was in this uh, when I had this realization it was a, probably around 1975 I didn't write true detective till the early 80s but I, I started the research as early as 75 because all of a sudden, the classic private detective, the guy in the trench coat and the fedora with a bottle of whiskey in his drawer and the good-looking woman who comes in to, uh, to, to hire him, uh, that had receded into something nostalgic, into period. And so it, there were a few things happening, like Chinatown. There was a great TV show called City of Angels uh, that has been forgotten. Uh, a show called Danyon that's been forgotten. Just a little bit of period private eye stuff. Stu Kaminsky, uh, uh, who's a Chicago area writer, or used to be, he lives in Florida now, I think. Uh, he was writing about a private eye in Hollywood who was encountering the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields and, and Clark Gable. Well, I thought, what, what, what if instead of meeting, instead of having Sam Spade meet an Al Capone type, or Philip Marlowe meet an Al Capone type, which is basically what Raymond Chandler did. Why not have Al Capone meet a Philip Marlowe type? This stuff now exists in history. And the more I got into that, the more I dug into the real crimes. And Chicago, of course, is a great jumping off point. Not, you know, not just for the mob, but for all kinds of things. Um, the Lindbergh kidnapping has Chicago aspects to it. And I did that in Stolen Away. So, Generally speaking, I would say Chicago is surprisingly underused in, in crime fiction. Uh, you know, Hammett wrote about San Francisco, and Chandler wrote about L.A., and Mickey Spillane wrote about uh, New York, and then, of course, uh, Ross McDonald also wrote about uh, Southern California. And somehow Chicago got a little bit lost in the shuffle. Very good writer who never really made a major mark. Howard Brown was a Chicago guy, but those those books never really took off. He did write a great movie, uh, Roger Corman movie about St. Valentine's Day, uh, and later wrote, after, 
kind of telling me, he told me he followed my lead after he read True Detective. He decided to go back and write. That was pretty cool to have somebody like Howard Brown actually uh, decide to write about Chicago because I wrote about Chicago, if, the kid from Muscatine, Iowa. Uh, and I'm not really sure. Now, Hollywood was different because obviously uh, Capone inspired a lot of movies. Uh, and there was that first wave, you know, Little Caesar, and which, of course, that's W.R. Burnett. He was writing about Chicago. Great writer, W.R. Burnett, and I would say probably the major writer who, who wrote about Chicago of that era, on a level with Hammett and Chandler, although he's somewhat forgotten. Incredible writer. Um, and, of course, he wrote High Sierra, and he wrote Little Caesar, uh, and, and any number, Asphalt Jungle, and, which is, I think, a fictional city, but might be Chicago. We don't know. Um, he was the you know he was the only one who really really did that. But then when the Untouchables hit on TV, there was a whole wave of movies, and that's kind of forgotten now. But the Untouchables were so big that Hollywood, instead of making uh, you know now today what they do, there'd be just like there's 12 CSI type shows and three real CSI type shows, you would have had 12 or 15 imitation Untouchable shows. But instead, Hollywood made movies, and they made movies about. They made that movie about Capone, which had Rod Steiger in it, um, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre movie that Howard Brown wrote, Roger Corman directed, and then there, there, there were Bonnie and Clyde movies before, you know, before Bonnie and Clyde with, uh, with Warren Beatty. There was one with Dorothy Provane and Ma Barker and all of that stuff, Babyface Nelson, and this was all Midwestern stuff. So Chicago uh, did you know, make a considerable mark in terms of film but not so much in, in literature. For television, um, a contemporary of The Untouchables was M-Squad. Yes, was that, that was supposed to have been taking place in Chicago. It was, it was Illinois State Policeman, Lee Marvin. Did you, were you a fan of it? Did you watch it? M-Squad was particularly tough. I mean, you know, that was, the, I think, the first time that Lee Marvin uh, played anything but a bad guy. And, and to have, that's also fascinating, when they would pluck somebody from the ranks of the bad guys to be a cop said something right there very tough show uh, I would love to see some of those again the, the best Chicago crime show was crime story unfortunately about midway they moved to Las Vegas but the first cycle of stories that was set here and based on predominantly real stuff starring Dennis Farina a real cop great actor but a real cop and based on things that really happened and you you heard things on that show that are common to people that know about Chicago and Chicago crime that hadn't gotten into the popular culture yet. The neighborhood, the patch. The first time I ever heard that mentioned, uh, you know, in, in a popular culture way in a, in a crime show was Crime Story. And it remains eminently watchable, and some of it's on DVD, and uh, I, I hope people go out and, and find that. Michael Mann, the guy, was kind of his follow up to Miami Vice, far superior to Miami Vice. Let's talk more about Michael Mann because uh, he had a couple other modern stories that... Thief? Yeah, and that's what I was getting to was Thief. And yeah, certainly a film that shot here and, you know, had real thieves as technical advisors, you know, instructing how the crew operated and how it interacted with it. Well, tell me, when was the, the wave of, of crime movies? I mean, there was a lot of stuff, DuPalm, and a lot of people started shooting here. And that was at the 70s? I was thinking it was early 80s because I know that was Bill's first movie. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, and I was going to, you know, I was going to start with Man and go to Mammoth and, and McNaughton, but... Uh, well, well I think, I think... 
part of what happened was that you you have in maybe as early as the, the late 70s, certainly the 80s, a lot of filmmakers finding Chicago user-friendly city. Uh, Chicago, not only did it look great, and really looks a lot more interesting than New York, in my opinion, with the, with the L and just the architecture, uh, fabulous place to shoot. Some of the wonderful stuff that's happening, uh, you know, Second City, I don't know whether Second City really inspired much, although it's certainly, I think what Second City did, the, 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 the comedy group, which my friend uh, Del Close was so involved with, told the nation that if you needed, if you needed character actors, don't worry about it, because the people, and you will pull people out of Second City, and that'll be fine. And then you have the various theater companies like Steppenwolf, which were doing such imaginative things. So the theater companies and Second City really fed, fed it so that Hollywood could come in, bring a couple of stars in, and just, just cast it here and, and crew up here, too, because there was a, a, a lot of, lot, still is a lot of, uh, a lot of talent here in town on the tech side. Before I get to David Mamet, I want to talk about, and I mentioned this on the phone, and I'm not sure. I warn you, I'm not a Mamet fan. That's okay. Okay. I mean, I'm willing to say. If you don't, yeah. I'll don't. tell you what I'm willing to say. I'm not in particular a fan of Mamet. I know he's beloved, and I know I'm probably wrong. But to me, it's it's forced and, and artificial, and uh, it just doesn't doesn't work for me. Uh, I find it stilted and mannered, and and I was very, um, I. <laughs> I had an opportunity to write the novelization of the Untouchables movie. And I just had my books about Elliot Ness in Cleveland about to come out. Would have been a great thing for my career to have the Untouchables book out because it would have led a lot of people to my, my other Elliot Ness books. And they sent me the script and they said, it's great, it's by Mamet. And I thought it was a horrible script. And I, to this day, think it is one of the worst movie scripts I ever read. I think it's a wonderful movie because it's a great cast, and Brian De Palma is a genius. But it is one of the most miserable screenplays I've ever read. And it was lazy. At the end of the screenplay, it got to a crawl uh, that was supposed to tell about what happened later. And it said, on, and there was a blank, on such and such a date, uh, pro, the Volstead Act was repealed. And then there was an asterisk, and at the bottom it said, have one of your research people look this up. So I didn't have a lot of respect for him, uh, and I turned it down. I probably stupidly turned it down, but I said, uh, you know, frightened idiot didn't get thrown off a building, and you don't go to, you know, you don't go to to Canada to get, uh, you know, to get liquor and have the the Mounties chase you. It's legal up there. Why would the Mounties be chasing you if it's that's why you go there because it's legal. Uh, if you just want to buy liquor someplace where the cops will chase you, do that and you don't have to leave Chicago. How do you change a jury in the middle of a trial? Now, what really happened in real life was, it's, and it's really cool, is that the, the jury pool had been tampered with. And so the day of the trial, Judge Wilkerson switched juries with somebody down the hall. And that totally screwed Capone up. But in the movie, he did it in the middle of the trial. Now, how exactly do you do that? Wasn't there a little bit of evidence presented in the first half of the trial? So that kind of sloppiness I have no respect for. Compare that to uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre film, the Corman film, the Brown film. The only thing wrong with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is that some of the actors are cast too old, and that's a common problem with Capone. And one of the fascinating things about Capone and Ness is how young they are, and it's never been told that way. Ness was 26, Capone was 29 when they were, when they were toe to toe. They were kids. The, the, the mob basically was, was a street gang that was 
trying to transition into to being a business. And that has been lost, and they cast guys in their 50s. It's, it's De Niro. Wonderful actors like, like De Niro and uh, Jason Robards. What a great actor. But gosh, the guy was probably 55 years old when he played it. Now, that said, Howard Brown, and he had done it as a TV drama first. Howard Brown did the most remarkable docudrama, minute by minute, uh, beautifully researched of exactly what went down over those those few days and it does remain one of the absolutely best documents uh, that Hollywood has ever come up with on on really any any true crime and it was all Howard Brown's doing. Corman could take the credit for it. It's probably his best film. Yeah, it, 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 it probably is. You know, not to take anything away from Corman, Corman, you know, I, you know, I said that the cast was old, but also there were wonderful people in that cast. I mean, you have Jack Nicholson doing three lines. You have, uh, you know, probably my favorite performance by George Siegel, where he's he's playing a, 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 I think he's playing McGurn, Machine Gun Jack McGurn. So it's a lot of fun. It came from there was this second wave of gangster pictures uh, that that followed Bonnie and Clyde, and Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, again was about which is a great film arthur penn's film bonnie and clyde it's more accurate than people give it credit for if you really look into it a lot of that stuff did happen uh... no bonnie didn't look quite as good as faye dunaway at twenty four or whatever but she actually was a pretty good looking woman the picture with the cigar and the grimace is her making a face you can find really pretty pictures of 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 bonnie parker and that film did so well that there was another spate of these true crime movies and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was, you know, was one of them. Um, I think it's fascinating. You have a, a joining of pop culture and history. The gangster movie, the, uh, the noir story, you know, The Godfather, for example, Road to Perdition I, is a film that I, I might mention. These show how our popular culture loves to draw upon the the reality and the myth of uh, you know our our lurid gangster history <clears throat> I do want to get to your stuff obviously and I do want to get to road and mystery as well let's start with road um, how did the, the specific story how did it come to I'd been uh, researching true detective which was the story about Sermang and there's a section that takes place in the Quad Cities, which is my backyard. I live in Muscatine, Iowa. Rock Island is basically 30 miles from me. And so I came upon the story of John Looney, who was the gang lord of Rock Island in the early part of the 20th century and had ties to the Chicago mob. He also had a homicidal son. Uh, I just thought that was great. That, and he had a newspaper that he, he had this wonderful scam where if you would come, if you're a farmer and came to town, uh, couple of prostitutes would rush up on either side of you, they, your picture would be taken, and then you would be told that it was going to be in the paper tomorrow unless you wanted to uh, buy the picture. And he did that kind of scam all the time, John Looney. I love the name Looney, too. I mean, the idea that this guy's name was really Looney. Now, ironically, Hollywood changed it to Rooney because they thought Looney sounded too comic booky, but in fact, that was the guy's real name and he and, and there were a lot of ties to to Capone actually Looney didn't like Capone Capone was at that point just a punk kid from who was working for uh, Coliseum uh, I moved it up in time just a little bit because I, I wanted to access Nitty and Capone and so it's one of my 
in some respects, my least accurate because the stuff with Looney really takes place in the teens and early 20s. Specifically how Road to Perdition happened was I'd written any number of books about Nathan Hillary, the detective with these real crimes, mostly set in Chicago. A lot of research. They're, there's a, they're, they're long books. I was approached by DC Comics, and they said, uh, we'd like to do some noir graphic novels. And I'd written Dick Tracy, and I'd written a lot of comics. We think you're the guy. And we want you to do something like your Nate Heller Chicago series for us. I said, well, I'll do Nate Heller. I mean, why not? No, no, we want something different. We want something that hasn't been out yet. And I remembered this story that I had run across when I was researching True Detective about John Looney in, uh, in Chicago, or in Rock Island. And then I thought, well, I can do my component nitty stuff I like to do. And I sort of put it all together. There was a, a, a famous... Japanese uh, comic book manga called Lone Wolf and Cub about a samurai and his little baby uh, who were traveling the countryside as the father uh, looked for revenge upon his, uh, his, the rest of his family having been killed. And I thought, well, an enforcer for Al Capone or an Al Capone kind of guy is kind of like a samurai. And so I, kind of, so I thought, well, let's transfer this over. Let's, let's do it as a gangster story. And then I had all of the stuff about John Looney and all the stuff about Capone that was unique to, to my take on the material. I read in my research that, uh, and I'll tell me how true this is, <clears throat> that uh, in some ways uh, Michael Sullivan and his, uh, and his son are kind of the, the dark mirror image, reverse image of Dick Tracy and Jr. Nobody, nobody to this day has noticed that the setup of Road to Perdition and the setup of the Dick Tracy movie are essentially identical. In the Dick Tracy movie, Junior is hide, hides in the backseat of the car and then goes and watches and sees the gangsters kill a bunch of people. And then Dick Tracy spirits him away so those gangsters can't do bad things. And in, uh, in Road to Perdition, Junior, Michael O'Sullivan Junior, sees his father doing it. So yeah, it's the uh, uh, it's, it's the bad guy version of, of, of Dick Tracy. Uh, some of the same people produced it, too, uh, the, the two movies. I actually worked on the Dick Tracy movie a little bit. Uh, I was a creative consultant and helped them pick which, which... They ran out of gangsters. They did all the famous gangsters, and then they came to me and said, who are some other gangsters that Chester Gould did? And I said, well, there's Fly Face, and there's... You know, I, I, I knew all this obscure stuff. Uh, but, yeah, and I didn't... I have to tell you, that wasn't intentional. It, it's one of those things that I, I flashed on later. I'm like, oh, that's the beginning of the Dick Tracy movie. <laughs> Let's talk about your, your work on Dick Tracy. We talked about Chester creating <clears throat> the strip. But it came to you. How did it come to you? I got a phone call one day, and uh, it was the editor of the Chicago Tribune Syndicate, a man named Don Michael. And for some reason, my name had come to him two or three times. They were looking for a replacement for Chester Gould, not as the artist, but as the writer. They had an artist, Dick, Dick Fletcher, lined up who had been uh, Chet's assistant. And they had decided they wanted to get a mystery writer. They wanted to update it. They wanted a young mystery writer. Well, I'd written some novels that had a, a comics aspect to them. There was a, a father and son relationship between a thief and a guy who wanted to be a cartoonist. That was, These novels were filled with comics references and pop culture references. So somebody said to, when, when uh, the editor was asking around, who should we get, someone said, well, there's this kid in Iowa who puts all this comic stuff in his mystery novels. You ought to call him. 
And then for some reason, just by luck, he asked a couple of different people. One was a guy I had tried to, to at another syndicate that had almost bought a strip idea for me. And he said, well, that guy Collins is good. And so anyway, it just, the stars aligned. And I was told they were going to do a, um, a they were, they were going to have an audition. They were going to audition about 12 writers. And I was in the running. And so I was supposed to do a treatment for a proposed, you know, a Dick Tracy story. Well, I wrote it overnight. I mean, I've been preparing for this my whole life unwittingly because I was the world's stone Dick Tracy freak. I mean, I already had met Chester Gould. I had made the uh, pilgrimage to the Tribune Tower. And he was not an easy guy to get to see. I mean, he, he, he didn't, you know, he was pretty private. And I had to be incredibly obnoxious to be able to get past the gates that were up, literally, at his house. I mean, I literally walked, I mean, I don't even want to talk about that. It's so embarrassing. But we became friends. And so he didn't recommend me. That's, that's, that's a misnomer. People think Chet recommended me because we had a friendship. He actually called me on the phone and said, I understand congratulations are in order. They picked you. And I said, yeah. But what happened was I did the story overnight because I knew I'd, I'd worked for a newspaper for a while and I knew that deadlines are key. So I thought if I can show them, it's the Second City thing, something wonderful right away. If I give them something really good and I do it overnight, they'll say, oh, he can produce. And that's exactly what he did. And a week later they called me and I went into Chicago and I was sitting in a hotel room with the, the editor and the uh, publisher of the Tribune and they're talking to me and there's a point halfway through the meeting where I, I realize, oh, they're not asking me what I would do if I got this job. They're asking me what I'm going to do. I have this job. And I actually stopped and said, do I, do I, have, the, do I have this job? Oh, yeah, you've got this job. And uh, I remember we ate at McDonald's on the way home. We really splurged, my wife and me. The first time I told her what I was getting a week, it wasn't that much, she said, is that a month? I said, no, it's a week. She said, a week? I think it was $200 or something. And it was just seemed like the world. It just seemed like the world to, to us. But um, it was wonderful. It was, it, it was just a wonderful break. And I worked with Chet for several years. Uh, he, never, he never really worked on the strip per se, but he was my um, go-to guy. I would call him. I'd run everything by him. And we had a, a great, warm relationship. He was a genius, a wonderful man. Now, what I tried to do in the Dick Tracy strip was take his lead, and I did, and I'm very proud of this. I tried to always pick crimes. I went back to the first 10 years he did, and all my crimes came out of the headlines. And I think we anticipated something like eight time and Newsweek covers of things like uh, you know, computer crime and video piracy, all these things that had, you know, never been in the comics because I viewed it as journalism and we also uh, got rid of all the science fiction stuff about the very first thing I did was blow the moon made character up in a car and everybody loved me for that uh, Chet didn't even get mad he thought you know, because I was trying to say new new regime and I put a lot of uh, put old villains back in because uh, Chet had a thing about not using villains more than once Whereas Batman had like four or five and just did them over and over and over and over again. He, he, he wanted to challenge himself. Well, uh, I, I thought if I'll, I'll bring, if, if he didn't kill him, and he killed most of them, I brought anybody back that he didn't kill. So I loved doing that job. Best thing in the world for me, though, getting fired. Uh, because a um, couple of things led to that. One was I just didn't get along with the editor. 
he didn't have the sense to know how good I was. Uh, the other thing was I got involved with something called the true crime trading cards that were notorious. And you may recall, this is, this is one of those things that became a CNN, uh, you know, cause celeb for about three weeks because there were visions of people selling Jeffrey Dahmer trading cards on, you know, to school children. And, and what, it, what happened was I had done a set of trading cards about G-men and gangsters, mostly of Chicago. Elliot Ness and Melvin Purvis and Al Capone and Babyface Nelson, Frank Nitti. And the publisher had commissioned a series called Serial Killers. And instead of publishing them separately, they shuffled the deck. So my cards came out as part of the true crime set. And I got tarred with the same brush. And of course, being who I am, I wouldn't apologize because I'm a freedom of speech guy. Are you kidding? Why, why would I? And so I, I defended the, the whole series, even though personally I had no interest in doing serial killer trading cards. And that was used as a kind of an excuse that I had tarnished the, the image of, of Dick Tracy. But you know what? The job I got right after that was Road to Perdition. So, uh, and I probably wouldn't have done Road to Perdition if I hadn't been hungry and looking for another gig. I was very lucky that I was asked to do a graphic novel version of what I do in the novels because the novels, the Nathan Heller novels and the Elliot Ness novels I do are long and Hollywood's attention span can be rather short. I had a brilliant artist, Richard Pierce Rayner, on, uh, who's British, incidentally. I had to send him all the Chicago and, and, uh, and Rock Island reference over to, because he'd never, I don't think he'd ever set foot in America at that point. Uh, but I had incredible illustrations by Richard Pierce Rayner, and so the Hollywood folks who looked at it, people like Spielberg and the Xanax, and they could they could read it in you know 90 minutes, and you know the visuals were right there. Spielberg famously said, "Great, I don't even have to storyboard it." So that really was a boon because it 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 really made what I do with history and mystery accessible to to Hollywood in a way it had never been. Obviously you're pleased with the, the end result. I really love the movie. I mean I, I really I know I know writers are supposed to complain about the movies and that they're changed. I, the funny thing is a lot of the changes and additions they made have parallels in other books I've written or, or comics I've done. I don't think it's that they meant it to. I don't think they're that familiar with my work but I like to think there's some of my DNA in the story and I think they did a great job. Um, it's a little less violent. The ending is different. There's a few things, but basically the, about 70% of it is right out of the graphic novel, and 100% uh, of it is the spirit of the graphic novel. So I would say if I, if I had had nothing to do with that movie, it would be one of my favorite movies. The comic book came out at a time when, when things were tough in comic books and maybe didn't get as much attention because it was this Paradox Press as opposed to right. DC. Uh, but it seems obviously the film has allowed the, the story to, to continue and you, you obviously are following up. Well, we had in the, when the book first came out, it sold about 10,000 copies, which was extremely, uh, extremely respectable. But then when the movie came out, Road to Perdition became probably the best-selling graphic novel of all time thus far. Got on the New York Times bestseller list for a number of, of weeks and all kinds of people who, who wouldn't be caught dead reading a comic book suddenly were comfortable with, with a graphic novel. I was faced with an interesting choice when, 
the notion of doing a sequel came up because I really wanted to bring people into the world of what I do with fiction, with prose. And yet I became sort of the graphic novel poster child. Everybody was interviewing me in the wake of the film about graphic novels all over the place. And so I'm the guy explaining what a graphic novel is. So I didn't really want to be seen as abandoning the form. So I, I ended up doing both. The primary work, I would say, is Road to Purgatory, which is a novel that takes place ten years after the first, uh, first story and really hits a... a part of Chicago gangland history that isn't dealt with much, which is the war years, the World War II years, the 40s, and the decline and the, uh, what, what became of Frank Nitti, and the whole next regime of gangsters like Rika Accardo and then Chiancana, and Sam DiStefano, these people that were coming up. So it's a whole, it's something that Hollywood has ignored, and uh, that's, of course, rich, rich ground for me. And I also did a... Um, a graphic novel follow-up that is called Road to Perdition 2 on the road and basically what I did there was more stuff about the father and son when they were on the road because my original intention the plan was to do 900 pages we were supposed to do three 300 page graphic novels and the um, the format the graphic novel noir program got shut down it didn't do very well and so I was informed during the writing of the first book that there'd only be one book so I had to, on the fly, redesign it into being a, a single unit. So when I had the opportunity to come back and uh, do more, I did. So this is sort of an implant. This is what we call in comics a continuity implant. I probably won't do a graphic novel version of Road to Purgatory. And I, I really am proud of Road to Purgatory. I think it's one of my best books. There's a possibility that the private eye novels of Nathan Heller, as well as they've done, that the presence of that iconic character may be a little limiting because of the fact that um, it's seen as genre, it's seen as uh, uh, you know this pop culture thing, whereas Road to Purgatory is being embraced as as just a novel because it has a bigger landscape and has uh, and it's told in the third person instead of the first person. And now I'm doing Road to Paradise, and Road to Paradise is where things get truly weird because it's, it takes place in 1973, and my first book was published in 1973, so I feel like I've lapped myself. Suddenly, the guy writing history finds himself writing history from his own life. Um, the idea that I am now researching the 70s is the most absurd uh, proposition I've ever had to face. But, you know, there's a difference between 1973 and 1975 or 1976. And I don't remember. Do you remember when Pat Rock came in? I don't remember when. I don't remember exactly when Nixon was impeached. So all of a sudden I have to go back and, and research my own life. So, so there's, there's, a, there's a bitter irony in there somewhere. Let's talk about mystery. Well, mystery was a, everything I do is sort of an offshoot of something else. Road to Perdition was an offshoot of Nathan Heller. Mystery was an offshoot of Dick Tracy because I was trying to do contemporary topics in Dick Tracy and certain topics would get batted down. I'd want to do abortion clinic bombings. They'd say, no, we can't do with that. I want to do with gay bashing. No, we can't put that in a family newspaper. And so I decided, well, I'll do something in comics, comic books, because there was this kind of indie comics thing, not unlike what happened in indie movies a few years ago that was happening where you could do in black and white, have an audience, and, and 
essentially self-publish, although we never did self-publish. We always had a publisher, although I think we had a four. But boy, we ran about, Terry Beatty, the artist and I, ran about 70 issues over a period from 1980 to about 1993. And we're being, we're, you know, gearing up now to do a new one because they're going to bring all the old ones uh, back out in, uh, in, a, in a collected volume of the complete Ms. Tree. The concept behind Ms. Tree was basically Mike Hammer and Velda, his secretary. Now, Velda was uh, not a wallflower. She carried a, a gun in her purse. She was a licensed PI, and she was his partner. And so I had this idea that if Velda ever married Mike Hammer, uh, and if Mike Hammer were happy to get murdered on their honeymoon night, she would take over the uh, agency, and she would also uh, make finding out who killed him and taking her revenge her first order of business. So that's really who Ms. Tree is, is, is a version of, of, of Velda. And uh, it's got a long sort of convoluted story with uh, a stepson. and I mean, it's, it's a big cast, and there's a soap opera aspect to it. But I'm really proud of it because she was the first of that wave of tough female private detectives that later uh, the wonderful Sue Grafton and the great Sarah Peretzky made a lot more money on than I did. Uh, it was the, they, they were women and they were able to, uh, you know, to, to get a little more credit, I think, than a couple of guys who are writing about a female private eye. But uh, if you ask Sue and you ask Sarah, I think they have a pretty high opinion of mystery. I hope they do. And it was a groundbreaking character because we did not play her as a sexy baby. She was a real straight gal and she was really, really tough. And it was fun to see where you could give her something that if Mike Hammer did it, you'd go, Wow, that was tough. But you put it in you know, put it in her mouth and it's just like, Whoa. It's just bizarre to see a woman, you know, do these things. We've had we've come so close with movies on her and we have what we have an option right now. Uh, and someday that is going to make a hell of a picture or, or a series. Because uh, it's still, it's still, even though we did it starting in 1980, hasn't really been anything quite that tough with a woman uh, in the lead. You know, she'll, she'll, she'll drop a bullet down a guy's pants and say, pull that again, the next one will be traveling faster. You know. <laughs> the uh, the crime comics seem to be having a, a bit of resurgence <clears throat> in the last five years. Yes. Do you see that kind of coming back in vogue and, and maybe, you know, taking hold again as it did in the 50s? Well, Terry Beatty and I with Miss Tree, we, we led the way, and there have been a lot of people uh, who've benefited because we really, nobody was doing crime comics. And then after we did it and had a modest success, we were never huge, uh, but we ran a long time. And so that encouraged people like Frank Miller and then a bunch of these other people like uh, the people who did Stray Bullets and, and so on, Bendis. Bendis and these kind of people, uh, really followed our, our lead. And, of course, I resent that. <laughs> I have to. But finally it seems to be coming around because the phone is starting to ring and, you know, all of a sudden it's like, well, you're the father of contemporary crime comics. And I said, yes, uh, and I'd like to sire some more children. And then they go, oh, really? You want to do some work for us? And I'd say, yes, that's how I keep the lights on in my house. And so now it looks like we're going to do some more. CSI, your work with CSI? CSI has been a real boon because uh, when I, I've done a lot of, uh, as a working writer, I mean, I don't have another job. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. I'm, I'm a writer. So uh, I take gigs, like a musician takes gigs or an actor takes gigs. And I've done a lot of 
uh, movie novelizations. And I did a, a NYPD Blue uh, original novel series a few years ago. So when I got approached to do CSI, the first season of the show, they'd only been on maybe four or five weeks. I said, sure. They said, uh, do, you, you know, do you like the show? Do you watch the show? I said, it's my favorite show. Of course, I'd never seen it. But I knew Billy Peterson was in it. And I've always liked him. He's one of my favorite actors. And I thought, he doesn't fool around. It's going to be quality if he's involved in it. Because he, he had, you know, he's very picky about his material. And I'd meant to watch the show. I mean, I'd actually been taping it and just hadn't watched him. I was busy. I was on other deadlines. So when I, when I popped the tapes in, I went, Whew, Peterson didn't let me down. It's a really, really good show. And then I got on board that right at the beginning and I've been the the road company CSI writer ever since I've written virtually everything but the show I've even written lines for Peterson because he did the video games I wrote so I get to hear him do do my dialogue unfortunately it's a cartoon version of him or a computer animated version of him but you know puzzles video games comic books but the novels that's really really cool and and I do Serious hundred thousand word original novels. None of them are based on the show, and they've gotten on the USA Today bestseller list. And people really, really seem to like them. And been doing them for about three years now. That's a secondary thing, but it's nice to have something. It's nice to have the sort of day job be that satisfying. In a conversation from 2005, that's writer Max Allen Collins. Road to Paradise, the latest chapter in the Road to Perdition saga, is available at bookstores, as well as 11 CSI novels. Don't forget, if you're going to Wizard World Chicago, Word Balloon will be there along with our free promotional magazine, and I'll be handing it out on the convention floor in addition to having copies available in Artist Alley at Doug Clauba's table, number 3024. Make sure you come by and say hello. And also don't forget, there's so many great creators in there that are going to be at the convention. People like Jeff Loeb, Jeff Johns. So it's a great opportunity to use the Word Balloon magazine if you have any autographs you'd like to get. We hope to see you there. Keep listening for the next edition of Word Balloon. It'll be coming up in the days ahead. Thanks a lot for listening to this one. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2006. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.